Uh, before my wife and I moved to Michigan, we lived in Illinois for, uh, for almost 10 years. And while we lived there, we uh, realized, we came to, to find out that um, corrupt political systems are uh, alive and well uh, today. Maybe you've heard of a man named Rod Blagojevich. He was the governor of Illinois for most of our time there, and he was a real gem of a man. Uh, shortly after we moved here, he was convicted of a whole series of corruption charges, uh, the most notable of which was trying to sell uh, the Senate seat that um, Barack Obama vacated when he became president. So he was a real, real great guy, and he ended up being the, actually the fourth of the last seven governors of Illinois to spend time in prison after leaving the office. This is, this is the kind of track record you want for your, uh, your, um, your state, right? So that's why we moved to pure Michigan, because we don't have corruption here. We're good, right? <laughs> but really, it's nothing new, right? This has been, uh, corrupt political systems have always been around. So think of the early 1900s. Um, there was a, an investigative reporter named Lincoln Steffens, and he went around to a bunch of different American cities, and he saw how deeply embedded corruption was in all of these different towns. So he spent a bunch of time in St. Louis, and then Minneapolis, and Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Chicago, and everywhere he went, he discovered these, these deeply seated, uh, corrupt political systems. So in Minneapolis, for example, there was a mayor named uh, Doc Ames, and he made it his first uh, job as mayor to fire half the police force because that was under his control and put in his own henchmen in their place. And once you've done that, then you've got a pretty good system set up. And he ended up running the city of Minneapolis essentially like a mob boss. So they worked out this system of being able to, uh, to accept large amounts of bribes to any criminal who was willing to play the game with them. And so Stephens, this reporter, uh, in his words, Minneapolis became a place where the government of a city asked criminals to rob the people. And that's just one city in, in all of the cities in the U.S. that he saw. This is the kind of corruption that he saw time and time again. And Stephens himself was a man who really cared about uh, change. He wanted to see a, a better working system. So how does that work? What's the solution to this? Shortly after World War I, uh, Stephens went on a three-week visit to the newly forming Soviet Union. And so he got to go see some of these model communist cities in Russia. And what he saw made him pretty optimistic. It looked like these people in this, this new class-free, collectivized society, it looked like they were really happy. It looked like production was really working. This might actually be a really good thing. Maybe a different system would fix all the corruption that he had seen. And so he, write, he wrote pretty optimistically about this new Soviet Union. He said, Soviet Russia is a revolutionary government with an evolutionary plan. Like he's, he's using these kind of slogan sort of a words. He wasn't blind to the fact that this wasn't perfect, but he said, it has a temporary condition of evil, which is made tolerable by hope and a plan. And then the, the bold quote that really summarizes his optimism, I have seen the future and it works. And of course, from the perspective of history, these claims are all very laughable. The Soviet Union proved itself to be as corrupt and brutal as any form of government before it. So 25 year years later, George Orwell, the American writer, could write his scathing satire in Animal Farm of this progression from seemingly well-intentioned revolutionary to cold-hearted, self-interested dictator. And whereas Stephens had this quote about the future, I've seen the future and it works, George Orwell had a very different quote about the future in his book 1984. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. And into that dystopian picture of reality, we get a very different 
contrasting set of words from the Bible, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. I mean, that is a huge contrast, a picture of the future that is hopeless and despairing, and then suddenly to hear that there is an offer of salvation to all people. Can this actually be true, or is this just some kind of uh, hopeless optimism? Can there actually be real, true hope here? Well, the answer is yes, and we have to see why. We're in a short series in the book of Titus called A Church Called to Make a Difference. And and in this, we're seeing an older church leader, Paul, who's lived his whole life trying to spread the gospel. And he's writing this letter to a younger church leader named Titus to help him strengthen the church so they can make a difference, make an impact on the island of Crete where they're located. We're going to look at this in in two parts today uh, about God's saving grace. That's really the the theme of the message this morning. It's about God's saving grace. We're going to see two things that we need to understand about God's saving grace. So the text that we're looking at today is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus is a little book. It's easy to skip over, but uh, it'd be great if you could turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the pew rack, or if you don't want to try to find Titus, grab one. It's found on page 1182, 1182. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. So two things we need to understand about the saving grace of God. The first thing that we have to understand is this. God's saving grace calls us to live differently. Look at uh, how he starts this section of text this morning. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been following along with us in this series, you see that Paul is relentlessly pushing forward one of the main themes of this book, that right living leads to, or right teaching leads to right living, that when we come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has an impact on our life. It means that, that we're living out the gospel. Our lives should look different. And if they don't look different, if our life after coming to trust Jesus doesn't actually look different than our life before coming to trust Jesus, it probably means that we haven't understood the gospel and we're probably clinging on to and putting our hope in something that is, that is not the truth of Jesus. But here, this, uh, he's starting off with, with the big truth that God's saving grace has appeared to offer salvation to all people. And, and appeared is a really important word in this text, as we're going to see uh, again in a minute in its second occurrence. But in the first occurrence here, it's about Jesus appearing. It's about Jesus coming to earth. So the gospel starts with God sending his own son into the world. That's where the, the good news of Jesus starts. And this appearing, he says here, is, is bringing the offer of God's salvation to all people. So that's what the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's what they accomplish. It's, it's bringing in God's saving grace into the world. And that saving grace does something. It teaches us. So look at verse 12. It teaches us uh, something negative and it teaches us something positive. So negatively stated, it's teaching us to say no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions. Now, so it's teaching us to say no to ungodliness. Ungodliness is a pretty general term that, that refers to anything that's opposed to the, the good that God uh, desires from us and calls us to. 
Worldly passions are the the natural self-indulgent desires that come from our inherent selfishness and then that play out in our opposition to God. So you think about all those things that have led to corrupt human governments over human history, they fit into these categories. Paul's saying that, that none of those things has a place in the life of a follower of Jesus. The saving grace of God teaches us to say no to those things. He also puts it positively in the second half of verse 12. It it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, self-controlled was a word that came up again and again in the instructions we saw last week in the first part of chapter 2 of what it means to live as a Christian in in all different uh, stages of life. But self-control means that realizing that, that I don't have to follow every single whim or desire that I have. I constrain myself, I control myself because I realize that I'm not my own master. I have a new master and it's Jesus and I I live my life for him, not for myself. Upright is about the relationships that we have with one another. It's about being righteous, about having justice, about living with others with integrity, with care and with concern for them. And to live godly lives reminds us this isn't just about being really nice people. This difference is because we have a true relationship with God, and that relationship with God should direct all of our life. Now, if we're looking at these verses, we can see that, verse 12 in particular, we see that this is calling us to something that's not really easy for us. And we can admit that it's not easy to to say no to our natural passions, to to live a self-controlled life. It's not the kind of thing that, that typically we want to grab a hold of. It can seem kind of difficult and constraining. But we have to see that this is good for us. This is for the best. So think, for example, about uh, the, the promises that someone makes when they're getting married. These are hard promises. We're promising to, to say no to some things, right? So we say, I will forsake all others. That means there's a denial involved in the marriage relationship. I'm not going to pursue other people. I'm not going to pursue other relationships. There's an exclusivity here. I'm saying no to that. And we're also committing ourselves to some very difficult things. We say that we are going to be with this person for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, even if it means sickness or in health. It's a hard promise to hang on to because it means that we are committing ourselves to a difficult task. And it's true that for some, this becomes a feeling of constraint. Perhaps you've heard someone refer to a spouse as the old ball and chain. What's that saying? It's saying it's like prison. It's like being a slave. It's like being in jail to be married to this other person. And yet people keep getting married. And some people get married and stay married for a really, really long time. Why do they do that? Well, the reason that everyone gives is, well, because of love. You talk to every engaged couple and almost every single one, every single one that I've talked to, maybe someone else gets married for a different reason, but every single engaged couple will say, we're getting married. Why? Because we love each other. And that's right. When you love someone, you're willing to say, yes, I'm going to say no. I love you enough to say no to other people, forsaking all others, and to give myself to this other person, to commit to this really difficult thing in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, because I love this person. And so I'm willing to make that really difficult commitment. But you know what? I think there's another reason that we do this too. And people don't give this as a reason for getting married, but I think it's true. Yes, it's good that love drives that, but there's another thing. I think we have a sense of the beauty of what this life looks like, don't we? So yes, we say, that's why I get married. But why do you stick it out? Why do you want to get actually married? Why do you make these really difficult commitments? Because you know that that's better. That it's better to say no 
to forsake all those. You know it's better to commit to this person no matter what comes up. There's this sense of the beauty of a life, a lifelong marriage lived in faithfulness and in self-control and in that kind of denial. The same is true with the Christian life. Yes, there is a denial involved. Yes, there is a saying no. Yes, this is calling us to a, a hard commitment to self-control. These are difficult things. But this is the best thing possible for us. This is what we are made for, and it opens us up to the beautiful life that God has for us. And that this is the best for us is confirmed by the, the orientation of the Christian life. We've, we've seen already that we look back to the first appearing of Jesus when he came and, and he lived the perfect life and he died on the cross to take away the penalty of our sin and, and he was resurrected by Jesus to show that the grave doesn't win. And we look forward to the future coming of Jesus as well. Look at verse 13 with me. It's while we live this way in the current life, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Christian life is looking back to the first appearing of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and it's looking forward to a great and perfect future. This is called the blessed hope because it's, it's the great realization of all of the promises, all of the hope of the Christian life will be realized when Jesus comes again because he's going to set everything right. This is going to be a great, a fantastic day for Christians, the, the best day ever. See, when Jesus came to earth as a human, he came in humility. He came in the appearance of weakness. He won his victory through suffering, through dying on a cross. There are people who looked at him then and said, he's a failure. How could he be who he says he is? Because look, he was killed. And yet this was how Jesus accomplished the great victory of God over the forces of sin and darkness and death. When Jesus comes again, with the blessed hope of his appearing again, he comes not in weakness, but in glory. And the whole world will know then that he is king and there is no others. This is the great hope that we look forward to. So the basic orientation of the Christian life is, is looking back to the, the coming of Jesus and looking forward to the coming again of Jesus. And this is where we live. This is how we live in great hope. We have a, a huge hope for the future because of Jesus returning. Now that future that we, that we look forward to is very different from George Orwell's dystopian vision of, of a boot stomping on a human face forever. That's not our future. The future that we look forward to is a beautiful and a good future. It's the perfect future where, where God's people enjoy being with him, enjoying his perfect provision, his perfect protection forever. There's a great biblical word for this. It's shalom, which means peace. And when we think of peace, we typically kind of constrain it down to a pretty narrow view of it's just a, a temporary ceasefire in the ongoing strife and, and battles and everything else that have been part of human history from the very beginning. But that's not peace like the Bible's talking about. It's shalom. The biblical peace is, is all-encompassing peace that is, that's lasting forever, and it's true peace. It's peace from battles and wars and bloodshed forever. It's peace from greed and corruption and theft. It's peace from anxiety and shame and guilt. It's, it's peace from broken relationships and anger and debt. It's the peace of knowing that, that we are loved by God. It's the peace of knowing that we belong to him, that we are his own children, and that he has a place for us. That's the picture of the future that Christians look forward to. It's a wonderful future, and that's why we, we live like we do today, because we know what Jesus has already done for us on the cross and the resurrection, and we live like we do today, looking forward to this blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus again in glory when he's going to set all things right. 
It's a beautiful picture of the hope that we have. But then there's the gut check. Does this seem too good to be true? Does this sound as laughable as this reporter, Lincoln Steffens, touting the the glories of communism before uh, the crash? There's a second thing we need to know. The first thing we need to know about God's saving grace is it calls us to live differently. The second thing we have to know about God's saving grace is it's accomplished, not by us, it's accomplished by Jesus himself. Look at the next two verses here. Speaking of Jesus, verse 14 and verse 15. It says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now look at that first part of verse 14, the first phrase there. It's easy to pass by this, but but we have to camp out here for just a second. Who gave himself for us. That is a massive statement that makes all the difference in the world. Jesus gave himself for us willingly, knowing that it would cost him uh, greatly. He gave himself for us. He died the death that we deserved so that we could have life. Don't ever forget that. If you're ever tempted to believe that God doesn't love you, he doesn't care for you, look back at the cross. This is the the defining moment that shows how much God loves you and what he is willing to do to rescue you. Jesus gave himself for us. And what this giving for us accomplishes is is, uh, played out in two different uh, ways in, in this text here. So look at the first part of verse 14. He gave himself, first of all, to redeem us from all wickedness. Now, that phrase, all wickedness, that's a really comprehensive phrase, isn't it? So you think about all of the corruption, all of the greed, and everything else that that we talked about in human governments, that fits within the category of all wickedness. And you know that corruption and that greed and everything else in your heart? It covers that too. That's part of all wickedness. But don't miss what he's saying here. Yes, there is that all wickedness, but Jesus redeemed us from that. Now, redeemed might not be a familiar word. You might not use that in your everyday language. In the first century context, probably the first thing that would have popped in their minds was slavery. To be redeemed meant to be set free from slavery. It meant that someone had paid the price for you to be released from slavery. So that all wickedness that you feel in your heart, that all wickedness that you see around us, Jesus gave himself for us to set us free from that. Not only that, the second part of verse 14, he gave himself to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So in the first instance, we see that we're rescued from slavery to sin. We're rescued from slavery to our natural rebellion against God. And in the second instance, we see that we are being made pure. We're being made God's own people, people called by the name of Jesus. Now let's think about this. This is an important part because it's really the turning point for us. This is the reason that the church's hope for the future is so different from the hope that anyone had in a different form of government, communism, whatever it might be. So you think about it. What is the root of the corruption that this investigative journalist saw in the American cities that he investigated? It's the selfishness and the greed of humans, right? That's what it comes down to. He's looking at systems and structures and all those things, which are important things. But what it comes right down to is the fact that there are selfish and greedy humans running the show. We have a word for this. It's sin, right? And and if that's the the root of this, if that's the root of the corruption, if selfishness, greed, and and the sin of humans is the root cause of, of corrupt governing systems, well, what does that teach us about the solution to that? 
It means that the solution can't just be humans. It can't just be for, for a, a, a better system. I mean, you can have better systems and worse systems, but when it comes right down to it, it comes down to the fact that there are sinful, greedy humans running the show. That's what George Orwell saw so clearly. That's why he had such a devastatingly pessimistic view of the future. And this is precisely where the gospel of Jesus Christ is different because it's a solution that is not human-based. It doesn't depend on you and I doing a better job. It doesn't depend on us figuring out the right combination of things to make it work. It's God, in all of his perfection, coming down into human history and so that there's an, a real and an actual solution. And that's why there's, there's real hope here. It's about, it's about Jesus setting us free from the power of sin. It's about Jesus making us new, cleansing us from the mess that, that we make of ourselves so that we can actually be his people. It's because it's the work of God. That's why there's actual hope. That's why this isn't just some foolishly optimistic hope for the future that can never actually come to be in reality. No, it's hope based on the work of God. It's hope for the future based on the concrete reality of the past, what, what God has already done through Christ. Jesus came and he lived to show us what it means to have a perfect life in obedience to the Father. And he died on the cross to take away the penalty of our sin. And he was raised from death to life. Death doesn't win. The grave doesn't win. So it's that concrete reality of the past, what God has already accomplished in Jesus in that first appearing of, of God's saving grace that makes us look forward to the future, not as some hopeless optimism, but as a sure thing because of what God has already done. It's a beautiful picture. See, humans have proven themselves again and again and again to be not trustworthy, right? And yet God has proven himself again and again and again to be absolutely reliable. See, this is part of a much bigger story within the storyline of the Bible. God had, had set about this, this rescue plan, this salvation from the very beginning. Paul subtly reminds us that when he says that Jesus is purifying for, for himself a people who are his very own. That's an echo of Old Testament language. See, God has started this whole salvation process with a, a man named Abraham. And he chose Abraham and, and to bless him and his family who would become the people of Israel. And this is what he said about Israel. This is from Exodus chapter 19, speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God had started this plan through the people of Israel. And he reminds them again of that in Deuteronomy 7, toward the end of the life of Moses. And it's, it's the same kind of language. You are a people who are holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Of course, if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, you know that they failed in this. Rather than, than showing uh, being a people who lived out the reality of what it means to know God, and to live in obedience to him, and, and to live a life that's blessed by God, they again just showed that they're another sinful, corrupt people. And time and time again, they rejected him. They did not live up to the calling to be this, this kingdom of priests, this holy people. And yet God still didn't give up on them. He recognized their weakness and, and he gave these great promises of what he would do for the people of Israel in the future. So there's a great picture of that in Ezekiel chapter 36. It says this, 
I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. So again, it's a solution not based on humans being able to do it better. It's a solution based on God coming down and rescuing his people. And the New Testament writers take up that same language as they talk about the people of Christ, the church. So 1 Peter 2.9, listen to the echoes of that same language. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And then in our passage in Titus 2, he can talk about Jesus purifying for himself a people to be his very own. Saying, listen, this is God making good on those promises. And it's pointing to the the future reality when we will be this perfectly because of the work of God. Listen to the promise in, in Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter in the Bible. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here's what I want you to know. There is hope for a perfect future. And it's not the kind of hope that we have like, well, I hope it's not going to rain this afternoon because I have some things I want to do. It's not that kind of hope. It's not the kind of hope of, well, I hope that we can kind of figure this out and get a little bit of a better system in place. Now, this is sure, absolute hope based in the concrete reality of a God who has proven himself faithful again and again and again. This is absolutely confident hope because it's not based on what humans can do. It's based on what God has done and what he is going to do. See, this makes a difference, this orientation of our life in the present, looking back to the past. So yes, this is what God has already accomplished in Jesus. And looking forward to this perfect future means that we live today differently. It really does make a difference. I've been coaching uh, youth soccer uh, under six years old. So we've got six, five, four-year-olds on our team. Uh, and, and, and I realized I had a, a glimpse of this um, of what the, the hope for the future really makes uh, in, in everyday reality. So we've got one kid on our team who's, who's a great kid. Uh, he's really fast, like the fastest runner on our team, uh, you know, athletic, really good at, at kicking the ball into the net, that kind of thing. But this thing happens to him when the other team scores a goal. He drops his shoulders, and he wants to give up. And there was one play in particular that I saw that it just it, it encapsulated this whole thing for me. There's, there's a big kid on the other team yesterday, and he's running down the field. He's got a breakaway. And, and our kid on our team, who's this fast kid, I know that he's faster than another kid. I know that he can catch him and get that ball. And so I'm cheering him on, go, go, you can do this. And he gets within, you know, 10, 10 more feet, and he'd be there, and he'd have it, and he'd get the ball away. But you know what? The other team had scored a couple goals, and, and we'd only scored like one, and he was kind of discouraged about it. And he just stopped short because he gave up hope. He didn't know. I, he didn't see what I saw. I saw, you can catch that kid. You, you got this. He's not going to score a goal. But instead, he gave up hope, and the kid scored a goal. And of course, it doesn't matter. It's youth soccer. But what this shows you is, <laughs> we don't keep scoring. We don't have a scoreboard. I keep telling him this. But it shows us the difference that knowing the future means, right? 
If you think that your team is going to lose, and you're already sure of that, why keep trying? Here's what we have to learn. Don't ever give up. You know the future. It's a good future. It's a perfect future. You live today in the present with self-control, saying no to those things, self-control, godly, upright lives. Why? Because you already know the future. You don't have to give up. You know that there is a good end there. The way you live today makes a difference. Live in light of that reality. Don't give up on that. See, we can give up on it in a couple different ways. We can give up on it forgetting that future. And what does that mean for today? It means I live in fear because I look at all the things around me that are going on and I see how little control I have over those things and I'm not sure how things are going to be okay because I've forgotten that I'm living in light of the future. But there's another way that we can give up too. It's living in light of that future, but forgetting that it's today, that you're called to actually live today in light of that future. And there are people around you right now that don't yet know this great news about that great future. And you and I are called to do that. Don't forget that there is a missional bent to this whole book of Titus, that we do what we do in order to make the gospel attractive. We live different lives so that no one has anything bad to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, uh, we are living testimonies of the truth of what Jesus has done in setting us free from sin and in light of that reality that he's bringing that perfect future. We are a people who don't have to give up but to live lives in the presence because there are people around us who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do this week. Spend time answering two questions for yourself. And don't just kind of pass over these. The first is this. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe that the gospel has set me free from sin, that that Jesus died for me, that he was raised from death to life? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that he's coming again and that the future is secure? Am I willing to stake my whole life on that reality? Do I believe it? And the second question is this. What does my life look like? How does my life show that I believe that? And don't just kind of use vague things here. I want you to think concretely. When I live my life, when people look at how I live and what I do, my attitudes, my words, my actions, are they seeing someone who has staked their life on the reality of the gospel and the reality of the return of Jesus? That's how we need to be living, right? And don't forget that this is for everyone. Go back to verse 11. This is the the grace of God that has appeared that offers salvation to whom? To all people. This is for everyone. This isn't for a special category of people. This is for all people. It's people like you, people like me, not perfect people. It's the offer of salvation to everyone. That's great news. So now we're left with a choice. What am I going to do with this offer of salvation? Do I believe the future can be more than just a boot stamping on a human face forever? Do I believe that there can be a good future, a perfect future, a future of true and lasting peace? Church, you are called to stake your life on God's saving grace. We are taught a a new and a beautiful way of life, one that's not natural to us, one that's not easy, but one that is wonderful and it's beautiful. Hold fast to the concrete reality of the past, that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. And hold fast to that that sure hope of the future, that he will come again to set all things right. And live it out right now in the present, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives today.
Please pray with me. God, we need you to work in our lives that this is to be true of us. We need, first of all, to believe that this is actually a, a true message. This good news of Jesus is, is a wonderful message. This hope for the future that you give us is, is a wonderful truth. I pray that you'd confirm that in our hearts so that we would put everything in our lives on that truth. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be a people who live it out every single day so that people around us, those who don't yet know the great news of Jesus, can look at our lives and see that this is another reason to, to, uh, to see that the gospel is something that's, that's worth considering. And they may see that this is a true thing. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.